Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so delighted to be joined today by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. She is the author of the novels Mexican Gothic, Gods of Jade and Shadow, Certain Dark Things, Untamed Shore, and a bunch of other books. She has also edited several anthologies, including the World Fantasy Award-winning She Walks in Shadows. Welcome, Silvia. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, and it's so fun to talk about Mexican Gothic because you've really written a, a Gothic horror story, which I feel like we don't get a chance to uh, try them very much anymore. That's right. It's kind of a bit of a throwback to an old-fashioned genre. And, and I, I noticed on Twitter that you were talking about how readers shouldn't expect a romantic kind of gothic, a, a, a womanly kind of gothic novel, because this one's all about blood and guts and horror. <laughs> That's right, yes. There are two, scholars divide gothic novels into two different modes. It's the male gothic and the female gothic. The male gothic, the perfect example is the monk, and that is much more violent, has right. supernatural elements. And the female gothic, uh, it's... Uh, it's the more it's the romantic one, and there are no supernatural elements. It's the one where we call the Scooby Doo, where it turns out that something that looks like a haunting has an, a rational explanation. And Jane Eyre is an example of that one. So we have these two different kind of traditions within the same genre. Yes. And it, this is this is a horror novel. It is a gothic novel, but it's a gothic horror novel. So it's not a gothic romance. <laughs> Certainly not. And, and I do like, though, that you set the scene by comparing High Place, which is the, um, the house um, in, in this novel, to places like the moors in Wandering Heights and the castle in Jane Eyre. And then you, I don't want to give too much away, but then you get weirder and creepier from there. Yes, that's right. Uh, Catalina, who is uh, the cousin of Noemi and has married recently a wealthy Englishman, we learn through the novel that she seems to have been a romantic and a fan of certain uh, kinds of literature and the kind of literature that she liked might have been Gothic romances, but she mm -hmm. was definitely going more for the Withering Heights and, and Jane Eyre kind of aesthetic, and that's <laughs> not exactly what she gets at the end. And I love how Noemi has such vibrance. She's a 1950s socialite in Mexico City, and she smokes, and she's got, she drives, um, and she has a really fun life. Tell me about your research in, in that area. Um, it's always hard to say, uh, to talk about research because I do a lot of stuff at the same time and some other on the fly, and so it all melts kind of together. So I can't tell you exactly what I read at what point and figured what out. I was thinking partially about my family, too. I was thinking about some things that my, that my grandmother told me and also uh, some stuff that came from my great aunts and, uh, and things like that in in building the personality of, of this socialite and also looking at kind of some visual examples of, of, what, of what people might have dressed like, uh, might have acted like. 
definitely there is um, she is a social a socialite so she is somebody who is who is privileged and is therefore able to navigate society perhaps in ways that other women wouldn't have been able to do it so my grandmother on my mother's side she wanted to go to medical school but she couldn't go they they were kind of poor but the UNAM the National University in Mexico is free and she was smart enough that she might have been able to go to medical school but instead she went to secretary's school because her mm. father forbid it he said that if she went to medical school there would be boys there um, and so that was and and she also had to support her family like her salary went towards the family um, on the other hand she came from a lower social class my great-grandmother was a maid so there wasn't a lot of money there but on my other side of the family, they had much more money. So um, my great aunts uh, and my grandmother did live kind of the lives of socialites, where they were. Um, they they might study. They have they might have access to some form of education. But since they didn't have to bring in a salary for the family, like a working girl might do, like my uh, grandmother did, being a secretary, uh, their their main pursuit was. A husband hunting to to get a husband. Right. Uh, on the other hand, two of my great aunts never married because their family had enough uh, money that they could be sorted on us. They could be unmarried women for all of their lives. But that was something that really varied by your social class and uh, and by your by the cash that you had. And in this case, Noemi does have a lot of opportunities, but you also see some of the. Some of the restrictions a little yes. bit in you know in the opening scene with her father and then and then you feel it throughout the book absolutely she i mean comparatively to to what we're we see at high place she seems modern and uh like she has every decision in in front of her but um clearly not i also love the aesthetic of both noemi and and the book as a whole like the cover is has such an arresting image and i've noticed that on social media you're doing um, promotions with a makeup company they make the kinds of lipstick shades that perhaps noemi was wearing tell me about that uh yeah it's yeah it's called besame and it's a it's a company that was started by this latin american woman and it makes vintage cosmetics so they are the kinds of pigments that would have been used at in different time periods including going back a little bit before this but the shades that we um that they picked for us were from the 1950s so it's uh, this bright red lipstick and this kind of very pigmented uh, sort of pink lipstick which would have been in vogue in in that time period and we also did um some paper dolls where an artist was hired to do paper dolls showing some of the fashions of what the, uh, of what Noemi would have worn. So they mm. used, so I gave some of my research to them, uh, some of the dresses that I was looking at and all that kind of stuff to fashion these four little paper dolls. Amazing. Hi, it's Maris. And I'm so happy to let you know that Mindy Kaling has a new essay collection called Nothing Like I Imagined. The best-selling actress, author, and comedian works overtime to describe with her typical charm and insight her latest life chapter, 
balancing the demands of her evolving career with the demands of new motherhood. In these six hilarious short audio stories, she writes about how she juggles life as a new mom, an actress, and a Hollywood power bruncher. Written and narrated by Mindy, this is the perfect collection to listen to on the go. It's available in audio and ebook format. Prime members can listen and read it for free. And you can download it today at amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. That's amazon.com slash Mindy Stories. You take us from this life that's so full of color and excitement and then she goes and checks on her cousin at High Place, and um, there is a shift in mood and tone. I would say it's it's a pretty quick shift. Yes, so she spends you <laughs> you just see the first chapter in in Mexico City, and then you're you're off to the mountains, and um, and it's and it's a very different place. I mean, city and countryside are always very different, but in this case. Um, the region where I'm taking the character, which is a real region in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, in Hidalgo, in, in the mountains up there, it can get pretty cold and misty. And people always imagine Mexico as being one single kind of topography because they've seen Speedy Gonzalez <laughs> and everything to them looks kind of flat and desertic and yellow colored. And really Speedy Gonzalez, those, those kind of, um, rectangular little shapes in the back those are like Arizona so that's not really right uh the the desertic Mexico where I'm from where I was born uh, doesn't really exactly look like that and then if you if you move around the whole country it has it has a lot of different micro microclimates and so in Hidalgo in, in the part where we are going um, up the mountains if you go there it's it's quite cold it's quite chilly um at times, and uh, there's the Celtic rocks and waterfalls. It, it looks very interesting. And if you reach um, this town called Real del Monte, which is what I base my story on, you suddenly see a town that looks oddly English, mm. and the roofs are different. And there is an English cemetery right there, and you are like, "What is going on?" <laughs> and the reason is because uh, there was mining there that was right. done by by British companies in the um, in in previous uh, in a previous century, and that's not the only town where you get suddenly this um, surprise of what happened here in this town. But it is one that struck me when I met it when I when I went there as uh, as like, "What is this thing doing here?" Uh, one one thing doesn't kind of fit into the into the other towns in the area, and and that was where I didn't want it, and it was the inspiration for this. Uh, kind of situation where you're like, why is there a piece of Great Britain suddenly in the middle mm-hmm. of Mexico? You incorporate that into the novel with with the Doyles, the yes. imperialistic British family who comes to work the silver mines, and <laughs> they're clearly bad from the start. Um, I don't think we know how bad, but w- when we hear about um, their entry into Mexico, it's clear they're not there for pure motivation. <laughs> uh, well, colonizers are seldom in a location just to make friends, let's put it that way. That's true. And so the silver mines that you had heard about, are those, are those basically the ones that are also featured in the book? Like the, the same kind of um, timeline? 
Uh, there were, yes, there were silver mines all in that area. Hidalgo is a silver mining area. There's a big vein called La Vizcaina in, 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 in that region of the world. And, um, and it was in se several mining towns in there. So I am based specifically on in the Real del Monte area is what I'm, what I'm looking at. But there would have been other mines in, in that other time. I was going to save this for the end when I was going to recommend other books. Mm. But uh, by coincidence, the same month that my book came out, uh, another book has come out at the very beginning of it by a completely different Mexican writer called Judy Herrera translated by Lisa Dilman. Uh, and Judy Arreta is, it's a nonfiction book. So he's written fiction, but this is nonfiction. And it's called A Silent Fury, the El Bordo Mine Fire. And mm. it is the real life story of a mining tragedy in exactly the area that I am talking about. Although in a different time period, this happened in the 1920s. Um, and more than 80 miners uh, were killed in, in this mine fire when they sealed the shafts. Uh, they sealed them too soon. So mm. they were basically cooked alive. And then at the end, they were thrown into uh, an, a gigantic unmarked grave. So this is a real story. Um, I knew I knew the story about Enworldo. My family is um, on my grandmother's side from Hidalgo. Uh, but Judy tells this this tale in, in, in this book. And so that is one of the mining incidents that I was thinking about when I was writing mm. this tale. Again, without giving too much away, how, how do you, in your writing at least, transition between the horrors of the real world um, that, that is completely rooted in reality to then thinking about the ways that other horrors, less uh, worldly, might sneak in to, to, to the work? Well, I think... Uh fiction is a is a way for a writer to navigate through reality mm -hmm. it's it's not that you are telling a non-fiction story or, or writing an essay but it's just that you are processing reality in a way and then something kind of is spit out mm -hmm. so that's part of the thing it's i'm not um this is not a this is not um an academic text uh, there sure. are papers that you can that you can read about mining, about the region, about Mexican colonialism, about um, colorism, about all of that. But all of these things that I am thinking about kind of uh, go into a hamster wheel and they come out, <laughs> they come out in a certain way um, together with conscious and subconscious um, ideas. And so that's, so that's what's happening uh, there. So I'm not, I don't start a book thinking um, I'm going to use this book as a great uh, gigantic metaphor for something it's more the other way around that certain things kind of naturally sneak into uh, to a narrative and and just make their way lodged inside there and and some things are always vouched inside your brain and are constantly appearing and reappearing in in books but yes it's not it's not a process where I say I'm going to um, talk about uh, a mining incident but in a but using a haunted house story it's just that all these things are inside your brain and then they come up at a certain point they just uh they bloom they they kind of mature and then and then they come out and and of course there's some research that goes on the side where i sometimes have to go in and find out specifics such as what was the cost of something at a certain time point 
in, right. or um, would uh, such and would a train have stopped at such and such point in the year, whatever, whatever. But those are kind of filling in the gaps and the general kind of big thing has already sort of happened in, in my head. Yeah, and tell me about even just in your previous works as well as this one, you are so good at creating an atmosphere that lures a reader in to even even in this case a, a very creepy scenario and there's like a you do some dreams that are like maybe real and maybe not and it's like a weird fever dream of a, of a place how do how do you get there well the setting is one of the one of the very important elements of a gothic novel there's mm -hmm. several key elements i mean one of them is the weather um, right but another big one is always uh kind of the house where this is taking place and and in gothic novels these tend to be grand estates big mm -hmm. castles uh, the house on haunted hill manderley uh dragon wick all all these kinds of um, huge um places that seem to have a distinctive personality and yeah and seem to um, serve almost as a gigantic womb for the for the protagonists. In the case, I'm thinking of the female gothics specifically. In, in the male gothics, it's a little bit different. Um, you don't get that same kind of big house sort of experience when you're talking about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But but in the female gothics, the house um, uh, seems to be uh, almost a physical element it it uh it definitely has uh, a personality and it acts like as an enclosure for the protagonist and the protagonist is always facing a danger inside the house so it's kind of like the phone call is coming from the house yes. like you said in you know in the 1980s with those urban legends the danger is domestic it is a danger of the interior and so the house is the house embodies that danger physically by being foreboding by being dangerous um, it has to kind of provide you with that with that kind of, um, of emotion and so things like the yellow wallpaper it's like um it, it, like the trouble is not outside it's maybe inside your your own room and it's early enough in the in the novel catalina says there are people in the walls and um you know we don't entirely know how to take it at the time but um it certainly implies that the house is containing a multitude of secrets um, yes, she says so, but you know she is kind of rambling, and uh, yes, Noemi can't um, can't really make make much sense of it. But she's not wrong in the end. And then tell me a little bit more about the Doyles, including Francis, who's the youngest son, who uh, Noemi develops a, a nice nice um, relationship with. Let's talk about how he is really into the study of fungus and Francis. how the indigenous people of Mexico have used mushrooms and other fungi for centuries. Um, yes, he is. Uh, he's a botanical enthusiast and also um, a mycologist. Um, there are two different kingdoms, by the way. Mushrooms are not plants. But um, 
Francis is very much a scholarly type, a geeky uh, mm-hmm. kind of guy. He is very different from the men that Noemi knows back in Mexico City. She likes and is used to being with guys who are kind of pretty, but vapid. <laughs> that's what she has sought and pretty, pretty men that take her dancing. And uh, I think don't challenge her very much intellectually. And so um, I think for her, what she finds uh, kind of interesting in Francis is that he, he is intellectually kind of there, um, uh, a bit of an equal because Noemi is not, um, is not a, is not a silly girl either. Although many people might look at her and think that she is kind of bookish in her own way uh, and smart. And so she likes uh, what she sees in that sense in in him. Um, and I think also Francis represents a very different kind of man. He is not um, like the pushy sort of guy that she's also used to dealing with. Um, and uh, and his cousin Virgil is very much yes. arrogant, very good looking uh, kind of pushy man that she has uh known through society in a way I think that's why she thinks she knows how to handle him um Mm. but then every time they interact uh, it doesn't quite uh, kind of work out in in her favor uh because Virgil has a way of um kind of gaslighting people Um, he's always kind of like uh, oh I'm very calm and rational you're the one who's being irrational and um and sort of very frustrating in that sense and she can't quite wrap her um, uh, herself uh, around him. She can't quite um, uh, kind of break his armor down except for one moment uh, at one point. But, um, but yeah, so you kind of see this contrast. One, of, one guy is the typical uh, brooding uh, romantic novel hero that you find in Wuthering Heights, that you find right. in Jainar, that, that, that a woman is supposed to feel attracted to. And the other one is this guy who you would never find in this kind of book, but she stumbles onto him. Mm. And it's, it's very clear that there are very strict rules at High Place and that the family members she meets there have, have various levels of investment in, in maintaining the rules. Yes. And, and there's a good reason for the rules, but it's also, I have to admit that I kind of was, um, if you've e- ever eaten Kellogg's cereals, you know, the frosted kind of sure. flakes, Kellogg, yeah, Kellogg's cereals were invented by, by a eugenicist yes. doctor, uh, Dr. Kellogg's, and, um, and he had this policy of kind of like clean living, like only bland foods, and mm. that's why he invented this type of cereal, because it was very bland, but it was still give you the nutritional value um and he had all these kind of rules um about what to do and what not to do including that masturbation was really very dangerous for your (laughs) brain um so uh so i originally was going to call the doctor that appears in this book cummins dr catalogs but then i changed it because i thought it was um might be too obvious or the name like the name is too associated with the cereal that people (laughs) would find it funny but it was part of that um, that idea about rules and do this and not don't do that kind of came came from there and and then it fits neatly into the narrative because there's a reason why all these rules are there. But it's also very much in the spirit of eugenicism of 
don't do this, do that. Um, this will, if you do this, you will become a degenerate and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. And certainly the impulse to make everything as bland as possible <laughs> fits right in with the Doyle's way of life. And in fact, pretty early in the book, you, you do mention that the Doyles have some interests in eugenics. Yes, they have a huge interest in, in, <laughs> in eugenics. Um, and eugenics lasted for a really long time, which is something that people don't kind of realize. Uh, everybody thinks that it was sort of like um, either only a 19th century pursuit or um, if it was pursued later on, it ended with the Nazis and, and that was yeah. the end of it. Uh, but the immigration laws that uh, happened in the United States, uh, kind of like changes in immigration patterns and things like that happened because of eugenics laws that paved the way for doing things like restricting people of a certain ethnicity from entering the country. Huh. That's, that's fascinating. I hadn't, I hadn't put that together. And so without giving too much away, because that's my main concern about talking about this book is that you've got to keep the mystery alive until the reader's there. How did you create the mythology around this family? Well, the Doyles are um, very much a representation of the empire, right? Um, and in this case, they're British, but it's not like the Spanish were not there hanging out at one right. point. It's not, the, it's not like the French didn't invade, invade Mexico and uh, had an empire for a few years there. Um, it's not like the U.S. didn't go in and uh, also <laughs> invade. I'm, I'm like, I can't remember. We have been invaded by a lot of people. Um, <laughs> right. So they just, you know, they, they represent this kind of colonial force. In this case, they're British. Um, but, it, but also from like several of my interactions, when I, when I went to school, um, in Mexico City, um, I went to a really nice school because I was in a scholarship. So I, I got to go to school with very wealthy people. Mm. And I got to um, also, for that reason, um, be in touch with some people who were American or British or, or foreigners. And, and I remember going to a couple of parties and, um, and just how people would treat me uh, uh, or would treat yeah, and would treat other people, and there was very much kind of like this racial divide. I mean, they, they're there in Mexico and they're working for the embassy or or, or whatever, right. and and then they are you know telling me nasty things. Um, I I remember this woman, I'll never forget it, making fun of my breasts. Uh, uh, she you know I was I was very young, I was seventeen or something like that, and she turned to me and said, "Oh, look at you, this little Mexican girl." pushing out her perky little breasts you know mm. I was wearing a tank top it was the 90s um, oh, and those gosh. kinds of interactions uh, would would take place or sometimes men leering you know right at, at me um, seeing if they could get you know like thinking basically that you are um, automatically a sex worker because you are mm. a young woman of color and trying to figure out your price and things like that. And these were in, these were nice parties. These were fancy people. Right. And sometimes these were horrible people. I mean, there were nice people too, but some <laughs> of the interactions that I had were definitely things that would make you feel ashamed. Um, things where you were very much aware of how you were viewed on a racial scale. And so, 
some of those memories are uh, what uh, what went into this book. Uh, and, you know, further on in life, as I've moved to Canada and, and I'm an immigrant here, there have been occasions in which I have experienced uh, disturbing and encounters um, with people. I was, I mean, just recently I, I, I was going to have my blood taken at a, at a clinic because I had to have some tests and it was at the beginning of this COVID-19 pandemic. And I remember this white lady approaching me and um, asking me if I was Asian. And I said, what? I, I, I said something bad, like that's not your damn business or something <laughs> like that. And she basically, there were only the two of us in the whole like waiting area. It was a, it was a big waiting area. And she went and she like sat way on the other side and just kept staring at me. So she was, you mm. know, kind of thinking like I, maybe I was Jeremy or whatever. I don't even look Asian. And I felt very bad for anybody who even looked in it, you know, and we're in Vancouver. There's so many Asian right. people. And I couldn't believe that somebody could be walking around being that racist. Um, and that kind of stuff. So, so when you kind of experience that, like it, it, it goes in, it's just like some of the material that, like I said, goes into your brain and, and starts rotating there like a hamster wheel. So a lot of that um, kind of came out in the book, some of these nasty interactions. And I think people don't kind of believe you, but when you talk to other people of color, when I've talked to some other black people, when I've talked to some other um, indigenous people, we have shared stories where it's like, um, yeah, that happened, and I totally believe you, uh, because sometimes folks just assume that we're kind of making it up or exaggerating, but it's mm. not. It's like it really like there's some horrible interactions, and the other people don't even realize that they're racist. That's sure. the thing, you know. They're they're just kind of like going around and they say something horrible about you, and they just keep talking and going, or they're like, "Why are you offended?" You know, uh, and like in the book, you know, "Why are you offended?" I said you were hot, like you're a hot tamale, <laughs> and you're like. Yes, but you said it like in a way that is completely disgusting. Um, and so it's not a compliment, but they always kind of like, yeah, men also expect everything to be kind of like a compliment. Like, you know, I said you had hot little titties, like you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And so um, so some of that came out um, in the book. But it's, you know, it's experiences that, you know, a woman of color um, sometimes faces uh, and and mine were not, and there's worse. So this is like this is just this is mine were oh, not sure. that bad in comparison to other people, uh, who have definitely violently been harassed. But and I do love that you're able to take a, a kind of Lovecraftian kind of horror, uh, a fear of the other, and and put that for readers onto the very white, very bland family. Well, you know, fear, um, Lovecraft fears uh, the other, and he always um, kind of racializes it. He, yes. he also fears other things, let's put it that way, but, but his racial fears are overwhelming, and the other definitely becomes coded as something that is racially the other. So in this case, yeah, Noemi comes in, and um, uh, there's this family that, that's you know, talking like Lovecraft would talk like we are the pinnacle of white civilization. We're the best mm. of all. And mm. she's looking around this moldy, ugly, decrepit house. Yes. Like, and and she's going like, what are you talking about? You're not <laughs> the pinnacle of anything. You're like a bunch of bums. And that's what she's she's thinking. Like, like you people are horrible. You like you have no right to like think that you're in, in any kind of superior position. 
but of course they are talking like H.P. Lovecraft, who at the end, you know, I mean, H.P., like, I like a lot of H.P. stories. I did my thesis on him, but honestly, he was not the pinnacle of anything. He was eating cans of beans in, in like an attic room because he couldn't get a job and had to like borrow money from his aunts and stuff like that. It's, it's not exactly, um, evidence of superiority about anything and yet he's still kind of spouting like you know oh I'm afraid of the Jews I'm afraid of the black people and so so you can very much have that attitude and really be like totally not succeeding in life (laughs) you can get Darwinian and be like survival of the fittest and then it's like uh you're not the fittest and still be deluded enough to think oh I am just because I am white and so Noemi comes in and yeah she is very much like you are not fooling anybody (laughs) right and and so there's very much this this clash of personality too because of that because she just is like I you know whatever like yeah you were rich once good for you (laughs) back to reality but they're still stuck in that mindset like very much the house is stuck in another era because right. the patriarch wants it that way right he 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 loves this um this idea early kind of like yeah like 19th century eugenesis kind of time period he wants to just keep living in that and you do hear uh, Virgil at one point saying um well I wouldn't run the house like that but Virgil it doesn't mean that he doesn't still have his <laughs> His, his his ideas of the world are not exactly good just because right. they run it that way. Like, you know, Nazis would run the world different than uh, <laughs> conquerors in the Congo. Doesn't right. mean that one is better than the other. It's still a really bad deal for anybody who's a person of color. Indeed. Um, Sylvia, thank you so much. If there's one more book you want to shout out? Um, yes, I've been talking about Tender is the Flesh quite a bit by mm. Agustina Bastenrica. She is a South American writer, and this is a science fiction novel in which cannibalism is legal, and you basically go to the store and you buy human meat and you eat it, and people are grown as um, uh, to be consumed. So it's, it's very grim, dystopian, but I really liked it, and I think it's very different from what normally gets translated. And right exhibited as Latin American writing. And so it's a great opportunity to, for English speaking audiences to experience something that we normally don't get to see very often. So that is Tender is the Flesh. Amazing, thank you so much. And Mexican Gothic again is the name of the book that is out now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.